Katie, I've got some momentous news. Uh, I think I'm leaving Blocked and Reported. Wait, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, patrons know that we I have owed them for a long time a rap about the replication crisis. This was set to a stretch goal that I did not think we would get to for a while, that we got to like forever ago in the spring and I just other stuff came up I was busy being too popular on Twitter Uh Uh, so many well wishers so it took me a while but finally just a few days ago I released my replication crisis rap it is called I (laughs) I can't remember what it's called I think it's called my uh my flow is non-replicable which is (laughs) (laughs) it sounds very menstrual did you say menstrual or minstrel I said menstrual but really both (laughs) <laughs> it is a very menstrual trap track. The uh, the flow just it's a heavy flow track. It is heavy flow. So what, why don't we? I'll, I'll explain what I mean about leaving the podcast. But then why don't we just play the first little bit right here? Sounds good. Blanket trigger warning for all of our listeners. Just blanket <laughs> trigger trigger warning for literally everything that could possibly <laughs> trigger you. Yo, juicy. Back behind the mic for the first time. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate it. And Katie, would it kill you to be just a little bit more supportive? And I told you about that rash and confidence. Come on. There's this view of science that's complete confusion. It contributes to harm. It's a mass delusion. It puts it on a pedestal like 40-year-old virgin. It's a backwards-ass myth that has started to burgeon. People idealize science. That's a fact. Do you think that PhD spells God from the way that they act? Like the TED stages in Okay, so as you, as you could tell, like I'm I'm a professional rapper now. I'm really good at this, and I just think I should uh, leave the podcast because surely I'm going to be get uh, like a 12 record deal from from Interscope or whatever. I mean, this is just a much better opportunity, and I will be able to work with people I actually respect. You know, I am actually surprised that this deal hasn't landed on your lap yet. I mean, Juicy, what could be a bigger hit than Juicy? <laughs> I do. Joking aside, I want to thank David Pizarro of Very Bad Wizards. He was the one who made me sound arguably not horrible. Like when I listened uh. to it, I was surprised. <laughs> we did get some patrons who said that they did not think it was horrible. And not horrible is the only level I can realistically aspire to in anything I do. Is he the one who in the very beginning there says, fuck you, Jesse, under the track? I I said this when I just went on Very Bad Wizards. That makes me made me so happy when he's like, fuck you, Jesse. <laughs> it's really good. That's my favorite part, actually. The only good parts are, are when he talks. But uh, thank you for David Pizarro for that. I haven't done it yet. I'm giving some money to charity on his behalf because he turned down uh, the money I offered him for what was uh, professional-level production work, even if the vocals were not quite professional. Is it a charity for Jewish rappers? <laughs> it re- it, uh, it it teaches Jewish rappers how to code when they're trying to transition out of the hip hop game. In all seriousness, I was actually very impressed with this. It's like four and a half, almost five minutes long. Hours. <laughs> hours, hours. You did uh, actually a very remarkable job for what you were working with. And by that, I mean your lack of talent. Um, if anybody wants to listen to the full thing, this is uh, available for patrons. So just join the Patreon at patreon.com slash blocked and reported, and then just put it on repeat. One of my favorite comment on this, um, one of my Twitter followers has said, uh, children will be conceived to this song. <laughs> Those poor kids. Uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, everyone, for your patience. The next time we do a stretch goal, uh, we'll try not to have it be nine months late. You, but but also, you at some point need to offer the people something, which you haven't done yet. I did. I I told the people the name of the band that I was in in my mid twenties. Oh come on, this. I'm. Uh, you know, I think that was actually 
That actually took more guts than this this white boy rap that you did. <laughs> what is the name of this podcast that just changed the past, present, and future of hip hop? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. MC Katie Herzog. I am DJ Jesse Single, aka Juicy, aka the Semitic <laughs> Rhymes. The Semitic Nazi. The Semitic Nazi. Uh what are we going to talk about today, Katie? I'm kind of tired again. I, I think I should Always. just tell people whenever I'm tired so that I'm honest about it. Uh, okay, today we are talking about a story that you published this week in Reason Magazine about some campus college craziness, to, to-, to quote one Tucker Carlson. And no, to toke, to toke, to toke, to toke, to toke Tucker yeah. Carlson. And before that, we're going to be talking about some no good, very bad bills happening in legislatures all across the United States. Yeah. So uh, you and I, as surely our listeners know by now, have both written about detransition, about people who transition their gender and then decide the new gender is not right for them and transition back. There are also other situations in which people detransition due to not being able to afford hormones or being treated poorly. We've mostly focused on people who detransition because they realize they're not trans. I think I think. I think instead of saying because they realize they're not trans, we should say they realize that this was not the appropriate treatment for them. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the ones I've talked to tend to, to identify not as trans anymore. But you're right. There are a number of outcomes. I mean, we talked about uh, a detransitioner you uh, interviewed for a piece who has since sort of, um, you know, has a different narrative for, for her own story. Has retransitioned. Yes, retransitioned. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, on Twitter especially – People are saying that because we wrote about detransition and and expressed some degree of I don't know we we treated this question of youth transition with like a critical eye and and asked what the procedure should be that we are responsible for a spate of GOP bills banning youth transition. Obviously, I mean, don't you get calls every week from various uh, governors of southern states? Yep. Yeah, the, I'm sort of an informal advisor to to most of them, uh, especially sort of far-right state legislators usually go to me for their advice. Uh, no, the, the, the kernel of truth in this, which I've written about uh, on my newsletter, and I'll include a link to it, is one uh, right-wing group, I forget who exactly, did file a legal brief where they referenced my Atlantic article. The problem is the uh, context of the reference was them saying that transition does not uh, alleviate gender dysphoria. They took what my article said, which is that transition does alleviate gender dysphoria, but kids should be well assessed, and just flipped it 180 degrees so that my article said that transition does not help gender dysphoria. Uh, I am not happy. I was cited in that manner, but it also doesn't reflect what was actually in my article. So that was very frustrating. But as I say in the newsletter, uh, a lot of left-wing outlets also 180 degree flipped my arguments. So um, I think you and I are both a little bit resentful at this idea, both just in terms of like how unrealistic it is policymaking-wise that we are the reason right-wing legislators are doing right-wing legislator things, uh, but also we are very much opposed to these laws. Yeah, and it gets kind of sticky. I'm, I'm thinking of one example in particular. After the Trump uh, trans-military ban, you tweeted how this was bad and you didn't support it. I believe you were you became, you became trended on Twitter after that because the response from, from trans people and their allies was, how dare you speak against this when you are one of the people who has made this exact same, same thing happen? So it does make it sort of fraught to even chime in and say, like, I'm against these bills. I know the response is going to be people saying, like, basically not believing me and saying, like, you are responsible for these bills. How could you possibly speak against them? Yeah, which is like, 
I mean, how, how many times can we repeat that uh, we're very much against the military ban, which was just overturned, and for reasons we're about to go into, we're against these bans on trans youth healthcare. I did an article in my Substack where I quoted two clinicians at length last year, and the headline was that these laws are a bad idea, and here's why I'm against them. In the second half, I went into some of the nuance and some of the reasons we should make sure kids are well-diagnosed, but... Um, so look, I mean, what it comes down to is, is Arkansas overcame a governor's veto. They passed a law banning trans youth health care. North Carolina, I think the prospects there are much less realistic, but we were tweeting about this yesterday. This is an even crazier bill that I believe would ban all youth transition for people under 21. Would also, if you read a line, literally, mandates that if kids exhibit gender dysphoria – Government agents have to report them to their parents. This is like similar to laws that are in place for good reasons where if like you suspect a kid um, uh, has been subjected to child abuse, you need to report the authorities except with gender nonconformity. That is fucking crazy. It's very crazy. And it's written in a way that's so broad that it's like, I tweeted this yesterday, but this is, I'm from North Carolina. This is like my parents getting a letter from some government agents informing them that I had a bowl cut and I played Little League. Um, that's how broad this is written. I, I, I'm guessing that the intent was to, you know, if a child is in school and the child asked their teachers and, and, and peers to call them a different pronoun or something like that, that the teachers would, would inform the parents. But it's written in a way that's just way, way overly broad. Look, the, the the informing parents thing gets complicated because if a kid has like what might be diagnosable gender dysphoria, I, I get I get really conflicted on what the rules should be there because on the one hand it's a DSM condition, on the other hand you could definitely see situations where you, unfortunately, if a kid's in an unsupportive home you might not want the parents to know. I I'm, find that to be an agonizing conversation. I don't know what the right answer is there. I do know the right answer for like this boy walked like a girl, so let's report his parents. That's like some fucking Iranian mullah shit, seriously. Right, and who is in charge of, de of determining what is gender nonconforming? Do we really want government agents to be the people telling us when a, you know, this little boy's walk is too squishy or whatever? It's ridiculous. Okay, so... The problem with all of this is that the evidence for puberty blockers is not good. And I actually just got dinner with a longtime friend last night. It was someone I respect a great deal, one of the most empathetic people I know. Um, and and she was sort of forthrightly expressing some of her concerns about my work. She's saying, like, when there are these big fights for rights or worthy activist causes, do you want to be the guy who's like, well, nuance? Well, actually. Well, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but look, I struggle with this because you have states weighing really bad laws, laws that really would insert lawmakers between patients and their doctors, which 30 seconds ago, conservatives viewed as a reason to oppose Obamacare as center-right health care reform. On the other hand, as a journalist, I don't have it in me to lie to people. It is lying to say that we know a ton about puberty blockers in this context, about the long-term effects, about what it, uh, the evidence we have mostly comes from giving someone puberty blockers for precocious puberty and then stopping them and then their natal puberty comes kicks in. We do not know much about this other use case where you then put them on exogenous hormones. The best data we have that I'm aware of comes out of the Netherlands and their uh, system for diagnosing and assessing kids is much different and more gatekeepery than what happens in the States. And you can make an argument, it's too gatekeepery, but you can't just take that data 
and assume that we'll get similarly positive outcomes uh, with whatever's going on in the States where trans healthcare is a wild west. Right. So the question of whether or not states should be involved in these decisions is different from the question of whether or not puberty blockers are actually beneficial for most children. So one of the drugs that's commonly prescribed as a puberty blocker is called Lupron. And there is data on the side effects of Lupron. And I I saw something interesting yesterday. I was just doing some research and I Googled Lupron transgender. And if you do that, you'll see that not all, but most of the the stories, like if you click on the Google News tab um, or just in the main search bar, most of the stories, but not all of them are sort of positive. This is why puberty blockers are good for trans kids. If you Google Lupron side effects, what you get is a totally different story. And there are some very major side effects for this particular drug. I found an article, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but I found an article from a, um, a Las Vegas news, news station about the side effects of Lupron. It's called More Women Come Forward with Complaints About R- Lupron Side Effects. And here's just a little passage from it. In 1990, the FDA approved, a pa- approved it, that's Lupron, as a pain reliever for women with endometriosis, but it's so toxic that it's not recommended for more than 12 months in a lifetime. The FDA currently has over 25,000 adver- adverse event reports for Lupron products, including more than 1,500 deaths. Reactions include suicidal thoughts, stroke, muscle atrophy, and debilitating jo- uh, bone and joint pain. Um, there's also people say that it causes vision loss. Um, Kira Bell, who is a, a detransitioner in the UK, I don't know if she was on Lupron, but she just wrote a piece for Persuasion, and we can put a link to this in the show notes as well, talking about the side effects for her, which included things like vaginal uh, vaginal atrophy. So this is really serious. This is not people say that this is reversible, that there are no potential downsides of taking these puberty blockers. But we know that that's not true because even if we don't have good long-term data on, on puberty blockers for trans kids, we do have long-term data on on Lupron use for its on-label use, which is um, for for endometriosis and for for uh, uh, precocious puberty. Yeah, and and these aren't just one-off anecdotes. Here's a headline from the Kaiser Health News uh, Service covered uh, published on Stat News, which is a one of the best medical websites. 2017 drug use to halt puberty in children may cause lasting health problems. So this is a legit concern. To my mind. Uh, when it ta- when you're talking about a kid who is effectively trapped in the wrong body, which I think applies for some kids. I think there are some very dysphoric kids. Do you really think that's a helpful way of referring to it, though, trapped in the wrong body? I mean, it's a it, is it the body that's the problem or is it the brain that's the problem? I think this is what I wrote in my Atlantic article. I think this is often too oversimplified an analogy, but I think for some kids who are from a very young age so gender dysphoric that it's like all they talk about and they're in genuine agony – I think there's a cohort of these kids who basically are and that we should help them by giving them puberty blockers and hormones. What we shouldn't do is pretend this is like just, oh, you know, it's like taking Tylenol. It's some reversible thing. And the coverage of this in mainstream outlets has been egregiously irresponsible because there's this race to show that you're on the right side of an issue, that you're a supporter of trans rights, and that therefore you're going to repeat the line that this isn't that big a deal. It's totally reversible. We don't know. There was a UK high court ruling saying we don't know. There's also just a report from the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, uh, I guess it's called NICE. That is the National Health Services sort of research branch in the UK. This is one of the best nationalized healthcare systems in the world. And and they found that there just is not good quality evidence on puberty blockers. And you did not see this study, important review, 
get published anywhere but in conservative outlets. And that's fucked up because parents and kids deserve to know that this is somewhat experimental. Did you see the piece uh, in the the BBC piece, I think last week or the week before, about basically not knowing the long-term effects of this? Uh, Yeah, I saw the headline, the BBC and like the Sunday Times – there's some British outlets that are actually cover the story in a way it, it just doesn't get covered over here except by like Nash, National Review and The Federalist, which is pathetic. And the and the authors of that piece, the journalists who wrote it, just got absolutely fucking dogpiled, as you would predict. Yeah. So it's like you, you can't really cover this like any other science story. You'll get dogpiled, as as you and I both know. Um I, the reason I'm I'm mentioning all this nuance is because I just I think the truth matters. And if as journalists or even commentators we decide to shade or obscure the truth for the sake of politics, we shouldn't be in this trade. I think that's really bad. That said, I don't trust the legislators in Arkansas to to make this determination on behalf of everyone. I have talked to clinicians I very much trust. Go back in the feed. You'll find my conversation with Erica Anderson. When kids are assessed properly, I think this is the best thing we can do to help them. I'm open to being wrong about that. But I would just say, like, for as much as you and I are getting shellacked on Twitter from people claiming we are literally killing trans kids, we get – I do, and I imagine you do too – get many notes from people who are liberals who can't believe that we're in favor of these experimental treatments. There's a divide here among liberals that is not getting covered, I think. I'm sort of, I've, I waffle on this question of whether or not kids should should have pu- puberty blockers. Obviously, I'm not a parent. I'm never going to be a parent, God willing. Um, and so this is not a, a decision that I will ever have to make. And, you know, this is one that's clearly very personal and I, I'm, far be it for me to tell parents what to do. You know, I listened after I listened to your interview with Erica Anderson, the trans clinician. I thought, yes, kids with a with a very good diagnosis and a clinician, a responsible, knowledgeable clinician like Erica Anderson, this seems like probably the best thing. And then I've been talking to a trans guy um, on Twitter. His name's Aaron. I don't know his last name. And he transitioned, uh, I guess, in his twenties. And he's happy that he transitioned. He's not a detransitioner. And he told me that he's against youth transition. He's against puberty blockers because so many kids, we know this, that lots of kids, we don't know the exact percentage, but we know that lots of kids desist, which means that they essentially grow out of their gender dysphoria. And for, he didn't, he never grew out of his gender dysphoria. Transition was the right decision for him. But he said that because we know that a lot of kids, if left to their own devices, will grow out of their gender dysphoria, or maybe with treatment, will grow out of their dis- gender dysphoria. If he had taken puberty blockers, if he had transitioned as a kid, he never would have known as an adult. There would always be this sort of nagging question in his mind. What if I hadn't done this? Would I have would I have naturally grown out of this and I wouldn't have to be on this medication for the rest of my life and surgeries wouldn't be necessary? And I found his argument pretty compelling. Thank God I'm not the one who has to make these decisions. Um, but I waffle on this. You know, I, I look at the the complications or the side effects of Lupron, and I think this is crazy that people are giving this to their kids. But then, you know, you talk to kids that are very gender dysphoric and responsible clinicians like Erica Anderson, and I'm and I'm swayed by their arguments as well. So I don't I don't actually know what the right answer is here, and I don't think anybody really knows what the right answer is here. I do think that we're going to look back on this in a few decades and wonder just like, what the fuck happened? Like, why was this the issue that, you know, legislatures are taking up, that activists are focused on? Why is this the issue that you that has consumed our lives, whether we want it or not, for the last couple of years? Well, that's the weird thing is like, you know, right wing legislators are going to right wing legislate. But I, I do think that the culture war flames have been fanned by the fact that like, if you're a parent, 
and you have genuine concerns about this and you try to raise them, you're going to get your ass kicked online. Like people treat any asking questions here as like just asking questions as bad faith when we don't have good data. The data we have comes from samples that do not really apply to what's going on in the States. I just, I feel so strongly that in a situation with this much medical uncertainty, you have to let patients and doctors and parents make this decision. You cannot have the heavy hand of government come down and say, no, we're deciding this for you. You can't have any access to this treatment. And even just thinking about kids in Arkansas who are already on hormones, the government will now basically uh, force a detransition among kids with with bad dysphoria. That's like yeah. horrific to think about. And politically, it's just it's it's guaranteed to cause a backlash. We saw this after HB two in North Carolina, a bathroom bill um, that led to a bunch of businesses pulling their or threatening to to pull their business out of North Carolina. It, I think it's probably why the governor at the time, um, Pat McCrory, lost the election. You know, th- there will be a backlash from this. So I don't think that this is also if you're a person who really thinks that that kids should never be on puberty blockers. I don't think that this is the this is the effect the most effective way to go about it is targeting law in these legislatures rather than targeting medicine. Very difficult to do. Very difficult to do. I'll admit that. You would have to like, I don't know, like infiltrate WPATH and, and the American Psychological Association and these other organizations and, and, and reform them. Um, it might be impossible, but this is just not going to help. Um, and I'll say, so So you and I are on a listserv that, uh, that was talking about this, and I don't want to name this person, but uh, someone mentioned that... The law in Arkansas is the political mirror image to Vermont as uh, where it's illegal to not follow the affirming treatment model for trans youth. youth. Um, can you explain a little bit what that means? I mean, I can't because everyone has a different view of it. Affirming basically just means you're not going to try to make a kid who's trans not be trans. Within affirming care, as I note in the Atlantic article, there's a lot of different ways to go about that. And there's got to be some level of like probing and questioning compassionately on the part of a clinician just to do their job, especially if you're talking about a seven-year-old who might have like very underdeveloped notions of sex and gender. But there has been this parallel effort to, um, you know, uh, ban conversion therapy, which is fine, except sometimes the law is written so broadly stuff that isn't conversion therapy would be brand and to, uh, yeah, do laws like Vermont. So I- I'm worried, even though I'm obviously more worried by the right-wing laws than the left-wing laws, I sort of think like the actual kids are being turned into political footballs here, and that worries me. Oh, absolutely. And you can see this. So Connecticut passes a law um, saying that basically any student who who identifies, who who self-identifies as trans can play in the, you know, is entitled to play in the sport, uh, the sport league um, that he or she wants to. Um, so without any sort of any sort of puberty blockers or, or medical intervention, you can have a trans woman, you know, running on a track team or whatever. Uh, so Connecticut passes that law. Idaho then goes and tries to ban or whatever state goes and tries to ban trans youth in sports. So it's these states are all, it's like these kids are pawns. Um, these states are just sort of like battling out virtue signaling, you know, trying to drum up drama for elections or whatever, just in Inserting themselves in the culture war, where I don't think the state has any fucking business. I like. I wish trans youth healthcare was more professionalized. I guess. Yeah. I guess I don't want that coming from fickle legislators, where it could vary from state to state. I'd like actual healthcare organizations to start to take this seriously and to maybe create some some 
binding protocols, which they don't have. I don't know how that works legally, but like there's no there's no rules on this. People keep saying things like in the US, you can't really transition until you're 16. That's just totally false. There's no binding rules about that. People don't know what they're talking. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about when they say these things. They just make shit up. And this is including in major outlets. It's, it's horrible to watch. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in Arkansas, the legislature passed this bill. The governor vetoed it, which I was surprised to see. I, I heard an interview with him on NPR, um, but he did a fairly decent job explaining himself. Apparently, he went on Tucker Carlson after that and was completely unable to explain himself. Um, but regardless, the legislator overrode his veto. So it looks like this is probably headed for the courts. What's weird is that like people who in any other context will say, point out that like a subset of the trans community is genuinely oppressed and impoverished and, and doesn't have access to decent services when you then point out like, yes, that also applies to them not having access to good health care. Shouldn't we fix that? They seem to not get that like part of adequate health care is not being given medicine as unlikely to benefit you or at least having a doctor say like, do you really understand what this is? I, I just think this weird conflation of allyship with like, yep, do whatever you want for kids is is deeply messed up. Yeah, I'm sick of talking about trans stuff. Can everybody stop talking about trans stuff, including us? It gets like incredibly toxic. I, I, I had someone, I've gotten some fucked up communications on this, whereas usually, yeah, I shouldn't even get into it. It's just, it just have a wave of people saying that you're killing children is, um, it's also like if your goal is to fight these laws, shouldn't you broadcast that a broad swath of people with other disagreements all agree they're a bad idea? Why are you using this to just rewage the Twitter war you've been obsessed with for four, three years? What's the point of that? The other thing is like there's this idea that is, has become sacrosanct. People just believe it, that kids who are denied puberty blockers, dysphoric kids who are trans, um, if they're not you know given the treatment that they want right now at this moment, they're going to kill themselves. And that's not true. Um, but also, if you continue to push this suicide narrative, you might actually be sparking a suicide contagion. This is not how people are supposed to be talking about suicide, telling people that if they don't, that if these kids don't get what they want immediately, they're going to kill themselves. Yeah. I mean, we, so we don't, the link between a lack of access to puberty blockers and suicide is like, is basically unknown. There's one really bad study that unfortunately got published, I think, in science. Maybe I'll write about it someday. It's not impossible that. If a kid with really bad dysphoria is denied treatment over an extended period and has other things going on, suicide could be a risk. But what you're seeing online where people endlessly pair being denied access to, to uh, hormones or blockers right now with suicide, it, it is like you are trying to increase the risk of suicide because that is how it works. It's really responsible and it's hard to talk about. There's a paradox inherent to talking about it because we don't want to say that if you do that, that'll make kids kill themselves because that's the same thing of just like oversimplifying uh, the fact that suicide is a complex thing. But if you are promoting this message, you need to think about what it's like for a trans kid sitting there at their computer in a mental health crisis, seeing this message over and over and over again, especially given that uh, a lot of suicides are impulsive. People can have a really low 10 minute moment and their life and their lives as a result. So you need to be really careful. And I'm not opposed to people making the argument that among the other reasons we should be opposed to these laws, like with well-diagnosed kids, puberty blockers and hormones probably help their mental health. That's true. in like in the Netherlands setting, but, but you don't need to jump to like, Oh my God, there's going to be, there's going to be an epidemic of dead kids. 
LGBT rights groups and anti-suicide groups explicitly say not to use this messaging, and yet you see it everywhere, and it's really depressing. Yeah. Do we know that, is there good data showing that uh, transition, at least with adults, um, does lower suicide, at least suicidal ideation? I'm... I'm less familiar with the adult data. I don't think there's great data. There's this one, there's some data out of Sweden that people sometimes misinterpret as saying that it doesn't help with suicidality, but I think they're sort of misreading it. Um, my sense is for kids with, for people or kids with, with really bad dysphoria, it, it offers many mental health benefits, but the data are just really bad. And the United States in particular has produced so little data and it's of such poor quality that this is sort of an ongoing problem in, in talking about this. Yeah, we clearly need better data on this. I don't know if we're going to be getting anytime soon, but I doubt that these uh, state bills will also uh, stop. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. It's a horribly toxic subject. I, we genuinely want what is best for these kids. We do not want the government intervening. These laws are horrible. I mean, I will continue to speak out against him. It's just, it is depressing when you say, I agree with you guys on something and the response is, fuck you, this is your fault. I don't think that's a realistic understanding of um, any of this. Shall we move on? Yes, let's move on. All right. So I had a story and reason that I had been working on basically since last summer. It took all sorts of twists and turns. It had to change outlets, actually. It's about a, um, a, a tenured professor at a community college called Lake Washington Institute of Technology. It's in, it's in your neck of the woods. Uh, her name was Elisa Perrette. And they had an event called Courageous Conversations last June. <laughs> Courageous Conversations. It was a segregated, mandatory diversity training based on the white fragility framework. Um, so this is affinity groups where white people are in one space and black people the other Asians in one, et cetera. Yeah. I think it was just like white and white passing was one and then everyone else was <laughs> – that's what they said, white and white passing. Who gets um, to decide? Is that like do you self-opt into white passing or is there – like do they hold up like a like some color swatches up to your skin? Calipers, calipers? yeah. Um, so uh, Perrette has weird politics and is not an entirely sympathetic figure. She voted for Jill Stein. Then she voted for Donald Trump as – I will reveal shortly she became a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, but she had some problems with these trainings that would not be unfamiliar to anyone who listens to us or other – I'm making the jerk-off motion as I say this, but heterodox figures. I don't like that word. <laughs> Just so everyone can picture, I'm making the jerk-off motion. You're uh, pulling a tube in right now. <laughs> pulling a tube in. Not quite. Um Okay, so she decides that she's going to like say something during courageous conversations. And during a moment when like people are allowed to say whatever they want on a Zoom call with about 200 of her colleagues, I think faculty and staff, she asks if she can say something. The facilitator, who's sort of an outside trainer, says yes. And she starts to talk and she gives this little speech that's sort of like a David Brooks column about how like this is all very divisive. Uh, she says people should focus on the real problems like unemployment, not what she views as sort of contrived problems like, you know, fighting racism. She's a little bit skeptical of Black Lives Matter. None of this is like far right. It's all like pretty middle of the road, I don't know, center, center right critiques of all this stuff. Some of it even draws on lefty critiques. Uh, as my story reveals, she then was subjected to a nine-month investigation just for this brief disruption of the event. Uh, and the only time she really disrupted it is like she was asked to finish up by the facilitator three minutes in and she continued for another minute. 
Everyone freaked out. She's investigated for nine months, potentially a quarter million dollars, a quarter million dollars to investigate one professor for four minutes disagreeing with a white fragility thing, training. And and I don't know, like uh, part of so much of the stuff is anecdotal. And when you and I argue that like something has curdled and gone south in a lot of liberal institutions, people always want examples, which is understandable. But I feel like you and I both hear from a lot of people who want to speak up about this or that, but are afraid of something like this happening to them, right? Right. Was she like, was there like a cross burning behind her in the Zoom chat or was she wearing a KKK hood? <laughs> no. that Yeah, she accidentally had a cross burn right her. No, it was just like, you know, she's a little bit awkward and she did... When they asked her to stop, she just plowed ahead. But um, it, the whole thing was four minutes and just pretty – and then more more than four minutes of people complaining about it. But it was pretty bog-standard critiques of all this. Okay. So a quarter million dollars to investigate her. Did they – what? It, like what was the investigation? So I should say this quarter million dollars is, is what one person who's on her side uh, estimated in December – the college acknowledged that just the investigation, the outside investigator, had cost 80 grand so far. So if you include – she was immediately suspended from teaching. Uh, so replacing her, all the administrative efforts on this, like 250000 I think is reasonable. What they basically did was they like – I think they had a recording of the Zoom call. They interviewed like dozens of people. This outside law firm, someone working for it, produced a 200 pages worth of documents and what's so amazing about this, here, here's how the person who filed the disciplinary complaint, who's a higher up in the administration of Lake Washington, described it. During the event, the impact of the respondent's conduct on the complainant personally was that it was a truly out-of-body experience, the notes explained. Their ears were ringing, and they were sweating, and their heart was racing. It was super stressful. And, and you got audio of this, right? I got audio of the actual event, yeah, where you can tell that, like, Anyone who's traumatized by this would have something wrong with them, frankly. And the language people use to describe this really was this language of, of trauma. Let me let me give you an example. So so the the president of the school sent out an all-campus email denouncing her and said that she was being removed from her teaching duties to ensure, quote, students are protected from conduct of the likes that she displayed last week. Protected, Katie. Okay, this is just, like, is this safetyism? Is that what this is? What is going on here? Like, why is what this woman said so offensive if you heard the audio and she and she was making, like, basic arguments and was, did she attack anybody? No, I mean, no, she, she, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's like sort of a worst case scenario of what happens when you don't step in and nip some of the stuff in the bud. This idea that political disagreement, and this is stuff Americans disagree on, is inherently harmful or toxic. And, and the point I make in the article is like, for a long time, people across the left side of the political spectrum have been arguing that this is a tra trajectory. I mean, Sarah Schulman, Connor Friedersdorf, harm inflation, it, uh, you can't have a system where you can't disagree politically without being investigated by your institution. That's just incredibly fucked up. And, uh, and we've seen it pop up in journalism. So I'm curious how many stories haven't come out and, and how many people who want to speak up about this or that would face something like this if they did. It's just it's such an authoritarian impulse. And your reporting, did you find out that Perrette, that she was disliked for other reasons? There have been a, a bunch of these cases. I think the Donald McNeil case fits into this, the Stuart Regis case at University of Washington, where there's one incident, but there's other stuff going, or Mike Pesca at Slate, there's other stuff going on behind the scenes um, that made people, 
you know, all sort of ideological based and just like they're essentially like how they see the world um, that make them particular targets of these sort of retaliation campaigns. No, there had been some minor thing and some other training, but I think she had mostly kept her head down because she didn't really feel like she could safely speak up um, because, yeah, she... No, I don't think that was really the case here. And and when you read the investigation documents, like she really was investigated just for this brief dis- disruption. Um, I was originally, this was originally very close to running on a non-libertarian outlet, on a mainstream outlet. And the piece got spiked there because it came out that she went to the Stop the Steal rally, meaning she believes in the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen. This happened way after these events were set in motion and, and toward the end of the investigation process. So it makes her a less sympathetic character. She didn't participate in any rioting or anything. Uh, she just went there because her husband wanted to mostly. Um, you know, it makes it a more complicated story. But my attitude is like, this has nothing to do with the the thing itself. So we shouldn't discount her when there's so much sort of textual evidence just because she's a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. That's interesting that a mainstream outlet would find something like that so egregious that they wouldn't publish this other totally unrelated piece or this this piece about something totally unrelated to her actual politics. Yeah, I, I think it is. It's also, this was a story that was always going to do well because it is a campus outrage story. I, I don't think all of them are important, but I think I don't mind telling one like this once in a while if it gets this crazy. So yeah, I was frustrated by that. And then of course, some people will discount it because it's in reason rather than just read it and see how crazy it is. But I don't know. I think self-policing is important. I think we need to be able to criticize our own side for this stuff. Um, how did this change her? Did it change her politically? Is like, Did she become a Trump supporter because of this this incident? And this is something that happens, you know, when you are, I've, I've seen this happen when you're sort of dogpiled or publicly shamed, it can change your politics and maybe it shouldn't. Um, but this is something that happens to people. Yeah. So I want, as a journalist, you sometimes want there to be a tidy story with like a certain trajectory. I wanted it to be the case that she was radicalized by her investigation at the hands of the school. But I'm an honest journalist and I asked her gently if she thought that was the case. And she told me like a pretty compelling story that no, it's really just her husband got into the stop the steal thing. He wanted to go. She wanted to go with him. She said she's barely on social media. So what I say in the story is like I, I was initially drawn to this explanation for her behavior but it's a little bit more random than that. I just think she's like politically heterodox and weird and a little bit out there when, you know, you think about the sort of person who would vote for Jill Stein and then Donald Trump. So um, I sort of like stories that are not that neat. You know, obviously in a certain way, it'd be a better story if she had been like radicalized by this, but like people are often a little bit weirder and, and less predictable than that. What about from within the organization? Did she have support among her colleagues or was she really on her own after this? She had some quiet support, but um, I think the sense I got was that people were too scared to speak up. And this, I should be honest, like I've been juggling other stuff. I was finishing a book. I wasn't able to just like call along around randomly or go there and try to interview everyone. So my reporting was pretty focused on exactly the details of the case, but uh, she had basically no institutional support because again, she was denounced in an all-campus email immediately and immediately suspended. God, you know, this kind of reminds me of the Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying case at, at Evergreen State. They had essentially one one colleague who spoke out publicly um, to defend them. And then they got some, you know, some quiet private support. Um, But for the most part, if people were going to speak out, the only way to really do it was to denounce them. 
Yeah, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. So what's the broader lesson here, Jesse? There's none. Entropy is slowly tearing <laughs> the universe apart. None of our political institutions mean anything or have any legitimacy. And we're all going to die, often in horrible ways. Thank God. Um, one thing I think worth noting here is that we, of course, uh, tend to focus on on lefties behaving badly, I think, because we care more about lefties and them behaving badly. Um, right wing. I wouldn't say care more. I think we might, we feel, in my view, I feel like I have slightly more influence and an ability to improve lefty behavior. I think oftentimes conservative stuff is worse, but it's well covered by others. Sure. That's, yeah, that's definitely true. I also just, I, I, I don't care as much about the right because I'm not on the right. Um, and, and conservative culture, John, uh, John Chait sort of talked about this with you a little bit on your interview with him from a couple episodes ago, has been con- – Republicans at least have been so captured by like extreme conservatism over the past 20 years that I don't want to see the same thing happening to the left. It's probably too late at this point. Um, but anyway, the point is there are lots of examples of right-wing institutions and right-wing legislators or legislatures um, – tamping down on on free speech and and academic freedom all over the country uh fire has some some very good examples on their website uh that's the fire.org and uh if you want more information about about some of these right-wing campaigns i would look up jeffrey Sachs on twitter he's he's good at covering them yeah this has been a weirdly depressing episode i don't know why maybe it's just my my level of exhaustion but uh i guess that's it was there anything else we wanted to you wanted to say Join the Patreon so you can hear Jesse's rap. Patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Uh, yeah, $5 or more per month for three extra episodes a month at least. Uh, we'll be recording one the next one. I think next week. We'll try to get it up soon. Um, it's been a little while, but yeah, we owe you at least three this month. And you will get three this month. You can always reach us at blockedreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported. Barpod.org for merch, as always, flying off the shelves. Uh, you've heard a lot about it. Please consider buying my book, The Quick Fix, if you haven't. And if you have bought it uh, and want to leave a review on Amazon, that is always helpful, only if it's positive. If you hated it, just pretend you never read it. Uh, anything else, Katie? Is your, be- is your book going to be a bestseller? Uh, I hope so. I don't really have any data. It's weird. You know, just like I was told by you have to wait a while to get any data. I don't think it's going to be a New York Times bestseller. That's a hugely competitive thing. Also, uh, Hunter Biden's memoir came out the exact same day. Damn. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Who's more problematic, you or Hunter Biden? Uh, we'll let society judge. Whoever's book sells fewer copies is more problematic. So I guess me. Uh, all right. Well, thank you guys for listening and for giving us your feedback. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, my co-host and I are solely responsible for every instance of a child getting too much or not enough medicine. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember to check out the forthcoming album from hit rapper Juzy, Mimetic Semetics. <laughs>